the celebration of uh, Christ's birth. Um, as I said this morning, it seems like Christmas has come almost too soon. And uh, of course, when it does come, then it's all too soon over. And as I thought about our Sunday evenings leading up to and, and into, Lord willing, into the new year, I was actually drawn to the other end of Jesus' life on earth and his last words before he ascended into heaven. Uh, Matthew uh, records them in part in what we know as the Great Commission. Um, and what Jesus is saying, what he's doing as he leaves the, the continuance of his ministry on earth in the hands of 12 disciples, um, he's encouraging them. He's even commanding them to go and make disciples of all nations. And it'll be encouraging in this coming week in the missionary conference to, to hear about the disciples that are being made all over the world. And as I was thinking about this, I came to the realization that the practice of discipleship really is at the heart of the gospel. But you know, in this church age that we were living in, it's been, I think, largely forgotten about, or at least not given the prominence and the emphasis and the priority, perhaps, that it, that it should be given. And, and in some cases, it's maybe been refined, it's been watered down to mean something today that uh, is almost the opposite of what Jesus originally meant when he charged his disciples to, to go and make disciples of all nations. You know, the difference is clearly seen in the response of a missionary who had established churches in, in persecuted parts of the world. He was asked, what's the main difference between Christians in the developed world, the world we live in, and Christians in the persecuted parts of the world? And the missionary wasted no time in responding. And he said, in the developed world, you talk about commitment, but in the persecuted countries, they talk about sacrifice. And someone has humorously uh, described it as the difference between a bacon and egg breakfast, um, where the hen only has to make a committed contribution, right? But the pig has to make a personal sacrifice, right? But I think you get the point uh, that I'm trying to make. Now, most disciples of Jesus Christ will never be asked to, to die for him, although there are still martyrs in the Christian church even today. But he does expect every disciple, everyone who names the name of Jesus, he expects us to live sacrificially for him. And coming into a period in which we will celebrate the birth of the Savior, and a period which by, by any measure, really, is one of the most self-indulgent periods of the year. Uh, as I planned this new teaching series, I was drawn to Matthew chapter 5 uh, and Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Mount. And it's here early in his ministry where he lays out what life is to be like and how his disciples are to be as citizens of his kingdom. We prayed, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so over the next while, uh, from now through till, uh, till Christmas on Sunday evenings, we're going to be looking at that. We're going to discover what he meant by that. It's, it's a kind of an upside down teaching to the way things normally operate in our world. And what we're going to hear will go against much of what the world values and what the world promotes. And I was particularly stuck, uh, you know, struck afresh uh, when I read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount again by the contrasting statements that he made addressed to his disciples in what we call the Beatitudes. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm um, just going to read uh, these verses, uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 1 uh, to, uh, to 12. And we'll, we'll read these every Sunday night 
Lord willing, just to get it into our heads what Jesus is saying here. Now, when he saw the crowds, people were beginning to follow him, large crowds, masses of people. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... Now, it's important to note that although there were crowds, they were kind of uh, listening in, if you like, to what Jesus was going to teach his disciples. He wasn't really speaking to the crowds, the masses of people. Uh, He was becoming popular, but he began to teach them, his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely, uh, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice! And be exceeding glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to open your word without fear or favor tonight. To speak from it, to seek to understand it, uh, to seek to grapple with the issues that it raises as we seek to live as your disciples in the world today. And Lord, we pray uh, tonight, that you would, uh, that that we would not apply this word, Lord, to the person beside us or behind us or in front of us, or to anyone else. But Lord, we would apply it to ourselves. So, Lord, help us, speak to us, allow your Holy Spirit, Lord, to lift up uh, the power of your word, the sword of the Spirit, and pierce our hearts, Lord, that we may know today that we have been in your presence tonight, speaking, and you've been speaking loud and clear that we may know the responsibility that is ours to act on your word and to live in its light. And we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Um, Over the the coming weeks, uh, as I've said, um, we're going to hear from the greatest preacher that has ever preached, from the greatest sermon that was ever delivered on earth, because that's what this, this is. Uh, presenting truth so, so profound, so life-changing, if we'll take it in, uh, that this could not have been spoken but by anyone except by uh, God in human flesh. And what's so remarkable in, in, in the focus of the Beatitudes is not on, it's not on doing. It isn't the do-attitudes. It's the be-attitudes. Notice the difference? It's not the do-attitudes. It's the be Attitudes. It's a description of what it looks like to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't so much define a set of actions as, as it does describe a type of character that we're supposed to, uh, to, to, to portray and, and to be. And certainly there are plenty of things that we, that, that we can do and, and that we need to do as God's people to maintain our relationship with God. But we need to remember that the deep transformation uh, that, that we need is actually done by the Spirit of God in our lives, being instead of doing. Uh, and and that, that is counterculture these days. Um, it's a bit like, has anyone ever tried to water ski here? Yeah? Yeah? Anyone else over here? Ashley, wow. Was that just recently or many years ago? <laughs> I had a friend in Canada 
and he had a, what he called a cottage. It was really a second home, and it was bigger than his own home, but he called it a cottage on, uh, north of Toronto in the Muskoka Lakes area, a very, uh, very well-to-do area, a beautiful, beautiful scenery. And uh, uh, he invited me and, and, and my wife and, and kids up to his cottage several times. He was very generous. In fact, he was the guy I went to Canada earlier in the year to do his funeral. Very good to us and uh, uh, godly, godly man. But he had, he had a boat, and uh, it wasn't a very big boat. And uh, he thought he would teach me how to ski. Now, he was more, more likely making fun of me than anything else because I couldn't ski. Uh, and uh, when I couldn't get going, he said it was, the problem was he had a small engine on the boat and it wasn't big enough to lift me up because I was so big. But, but you know, counterculture, the, the, these, these beatitudes are kind of counterculture. They're not exactly what you think they are. And it's a bit of like water skiing because, you know, uh, Ashley, you'll know this, to water ski, to get up, you first of all have to sit down, right? You have to sit back. And then to go forward, you have to lean back. Uh, and that's to get yourself going. And then after that, you have to stand, but let the boat do all the work. So it's kind of counterintuitive to learn how to water ski. All right, Len? A bit like that, right? Um, and also, although the Beatitudes themselves may not be regarded, they're not exactly commands, uh, yet when we practice what Jesus is teaching here, our humility will increase. We'll mourn for the difference between the world as it is and the world that God intends it to be. We'll hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we'll be merciful peacemakers um, who are pure in heart. In short, we'll become more Christ-like if we apply the teaching of, of, of this part of his Sermon on the Mount to our discipleship. And, and that transformation will only happen uh, counterintuitively or against the flow of, of what the world would value. I had the privilege while I lived in Canada uh, of one year, uh, about 10 years ago now, uh, of going down to Florida. Some of you may have holidayed in Florida, uh, probably in Disneyland or, or whatever, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I only had the privilege of going there once on a holiday. But I'm told that when the orange trees in Florida bear fruit, everyone knows it. You don't have to put up a sign that says it's orange harvest time. You can see it for yourself. You can even smell the fruit on the orange trees as you drive by them. And in a similar way, true disciples of Jesus Christ are to live in such a way that everyone should know that they belong to him. In fact, the Bible says that as, as God's people were to bear much fruit. This is to my Father's glory. And we talked about that this morning, didn't we? Uh, God gets the glory. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. We're to bear much fruit as a result of our relationship with him. And I believe, you know, these days here in Monaghan, Elam, as we transition um, from 2019, it seems to have slipped by so fast, into 2020, uh, God wants us to move beyond just church attendance or church activity to an authentic form of real discipleship in which he wants us to bear much fruit for him. Uh, the word disciple actually comes from a classroom context. It literally means uh, to be a student, uh, to be a learner, uh, and in Jesus' day, you know, young people didn't go to universities and colleges because there weren't any uh, like that. Uh, you, you, what happened was that you signed up with someone as an apprentice. 
Still happens today, of course. There are apprenticeship courses that you can sign up to. So if you wanted to be a shepherd, you, you learned from someone who was a, a chief shepherd. If you wanted to become a lawyer, you studied under an experienced lawyer. You worked for and with that person, listening to them, watching them. In other words, you became their disciple. So isn't it unusual, so it isn't unusual, I should say, that the men who followed Christ uh, were called his disciples. They were stu his students. He was their teacher. And he had a threefold plan for them. First, learning. They, they learned by watching him. Secondly, they learned by doing some things that, that he had showed them that they could do and they should do. And then thirdly, they learned by teaching other people. And that's why the Great Commission says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I have commanded you. And I'm glad that, as I said this morning, that um, our elders made a decision to start a discipleship class with some men who were in need of that and, and were asking for that. And, and so it started last week uh, and will be ongoing. And if you feel the need to, to study a little bit more, uh, then I'm sure you'd be, you'd be more than welcome to join that group as they meet. I think they meet on a, is it a Tuesday, Jimmy? Tuesday evening from 7.30 uh, to 8.30. The prayer meeting then follows at, at 8.30. But if you want to see Jimmy, and he'll uh, give you all the details about that, making disciples. Jesus phrased that uh, great commission um, exactly as a teacher would have done in the first century. He said, I have made you my disciples. I have taught you everything that you need to know. Now go and make other disciples and teach them everything I taught you. And I suppose a big question that comes up sometimes is, can I call myself a disciple if I'm not discipling somebody? That's a good, a good question to ask ourselves from time to time. The entire history of the Christian church to this present moment in time has been simply just that, journeying with Jesus, first to become his disciple, his follower, a Christian, and then to seek to make disciples in whatever way we can. And the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, is known as the Beatitudes. It comprises of eight particular teachings of Jesus, which offer the best definitions, really, of what it means to be a disciple. William Barclay, the great uh, commentator of Scripture, uh, written loads of commentaries on different books of the Bible. And he points out that even the way Matthew describes the delivery of this message at the, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is important. Uh, it's important in this teaching. For example, in verse 1 it says that before Jesus began to speak, he sat down. Back whenever a Jewish rabbi began to teach officially, he took his seat. And you know, we still have that custom today in our universities when we speak of a certain teaching chair in the university or a person who's, who's, who's a teaching chair for that particular subject. It's, it's a place of important instruction. And there were times also when a Jewish rabbi would, would teach while he was standing or while he was walking around and his disciples would be walking around with him. But when he sat down to teach, his students knew that they needed to be sure to pay attention. They needed to be sure and listen. They knew this teaching would be, if you like, on the test or in the exam, so to speak. So the fact that Jesus sat down to deliver this message would have indicated that what he was about to say was very, very significant. Now, now before we go any further, let me give you the, the setting and the, and the context of Jesus' mountaintop message, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel contain the Christmas story. 
as well as the account of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to flee into Egypt to escape the, the, the jealousy, uh, jealous wrath of, of King Herod. In fact, that's how Jesus can identify with refugees because he had to flee uh, where he was born. And Matthew also tells us of their returning to Nazareth and the, the angel, when the angel told Joseph it was safe to come back. And then in chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist, who baptizes Jesus in the Jordan, initiating his earthly ministry. And then chapter 4 begins with the temptations of Jesus in the desert uh, and concludes with a, a summary of his uh, three main activities, preaching, calling people to follow him, and healing including in verse 17 of chapter 4, the text of one of Jesus' uh, first sermons. It was short, it was to the point, and it was simply this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Don't you wish my sermons were that short? Simple as that. Don't answer that question. Um, so Jesus then calls his disciples, and at this point in his ministry, his popularity was common, as I said earlier, uh, with people. Uh, people were coming from everywhere in order to hear him and, and to be blessed by the power of his preaching and healing. And that brings us then to chapter 5 that we've just uh, read, where it tells us that Jesus went up into the mountains. Actually, if you've been to Israel, it, it, it's a large grassy hill on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he sat down and he began to teach. Since the summer holidays... Um, uh, and they're long past now, aren't they? Uh, more's the pity. But many, many people, including me, uh, have probably started to try and get in shape again after the holidays. Um, trying to exercise more, eat less, generally trying to improve the physical health and, and, and our appearance. And while that's a good thing to do, I believe it's even more important to look out for our spiritual health, the health of our souls, and in a way, this is what Jesus is teaching in the Beatitudes. Uh, you know, in less than two months now, um, we'll be saying to each other face-to-face -face or uh, by phone or uh, by Facebook, Happy New Year! Happy New Year! And it got me thinking about what would really make for 2020 to be a happy new year. I'm sure it's the same for you as it is for me. My happiness tends to go up and down depending on how things are going in my life at any given time. Uh, but here Jesus is calling out his disciples to find a happiness, a blessedness, if you like, in some very strange and unusual circumstances. And instead of using the word happy, Jesus uses the word blessed. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. In fact, this is a central theme of this Sermon on the Mount because Jesus uses that word blessed nine times in these 12 verses. You can count them. In an effort to convey the, the idea of a state of being that's more than just happy, uh, many Bibles use the word blessed or blessed, although it's not a word that's in our everyday speech, I suppose, these days. In the Greek, the word that we translate blessed or blessed uh, is actually makarios, and it communicates the idea of contentment, of fulfillment, of satisfaction. And you and I almost never hear that word in a non-religious context. And the fact that, uh, in fact, when most people say that word, they don't pronounce it as it should be pronounced according to the rules of the English language. When we read these verses, we don't say blessed. We make a more religious sounding 
uh, pronouncement by saying in a, in a sort of a stained glass voice, blessed, blessed. But we don't do that in, in any other sort of context where a word ends in, e, in ED, do we? We don't, we don't say, my hair is messed up today um, because I haven't had enough time to, to get dressed. <laughs> but we do say blessed because it is a sort of a holy word. And in Jesus' day, it was used to describe a sort of holy happiness or a holy joy. And also in our casual everyday use of the word, if we do use it, uh, blessed, I believe it's, you know, we've also created another problem in that too often our, our, our routine response to material windfalls, if you like, is to call ourselves blessed. You know, the new car, oh, it was, it's such a blessing, you know. Um, I finally sold the house and I'm feeling blessed. Um, I just got back from a mission trip and it made me realize how blessed we are here in this country. We, we use it in a very casual sort of way. And on the surface, it seems harmless to speak of being blessed in these ways because after all, why wouldn't we want to give God the glory for everything we have? What's the problem with attributing material good fortune to be the result of God's blessing? We talked about that again this morning, didn't we? Well, it may seem to be splitting hairs maybe over over words, but the problem is that in some way the talk of being blessed can be mistaken for reducing God to some kind of benign genie in a lamp that just spends his days randomly bestowing cars on us and cash and other commodities to his followers. And as I've mentioned before, nowhere in Scripture are we promised worldly comfort and ease in return for our confession of faith. It doesn't work like that, even though there are preachers on, uh, on TV and, and out there who will tell you that. God is not a behavioral psychologist handing out blessings to those who are good or to those who need some positive reinforcement to do as well. In our Christian culture, we're all too prone to hijacking this word blessed by making it seem like some kind of spiritual lottery where every sincere prayer buys us just another sort of scratch-off ticket that wins us a blessing. The truth is that some of God's most devout disciples died penniless or received a one-way ticket to prison, like we talked about Joseph these days, or death by torture. We have no idea why we were born where we were or why we have the opportunities we have. God hasn't chosen me or you above other people because of the beauty of our prayers or the depth of our faith. We need to understand that our true blessing is not our job, it's not our car, it's not our house, it's not our material standard of living. Our blessing is that we know a God who gives hope to the hopeless, a God who loves the unlovable, a God who comforts the sorrowful, a God who has planted this same power within all of us. And for this blessing, our, our response should be, Lord, I worship you alone. Use me as your disciple because you alone are worthy. And I don't deserve all of the blessing, Lord, that, that life gives to me. So regardless of the material blessings that we have or we don't have, in God's upside-down sort of kingdom that he's talking about here, I don't believe Jesus would call me blessed in, in, in those sort of things. He'd more, more likely call me burdened and, and ask, well, what will you do with this life of yours as my disciple? Will you use it for yourself? Will, will you share it? Will you use it to help other people? God's people are blessed to be a blessing. Amen. 
And if we're looking for the true definition of blessing, Jesus spells it out clearly in the Beatitudes. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying tonight, because God is in the business of blessing men and women. Yes, he is. And the ultimate end of it all, verse 12, uh, that practicing these Beatitudes should result in uh, rejoicing and, and exceeding gladness. But don't make the mistake that this is for the world's happiness that's based on happenstance. It's not. The word beatitude itself comes from a, a Latin word, beatitudo, which means supreme happiness, a joy that fills the soul, even when in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. And it's one that has little to do with our emotions. Human happiness is something that's, that's dependent on the circumstances of life, something which, may give, uh, which, which life may give or which life may take away. But the blessedness of the life, our life in Christ is untouchable by life's circumstances. It's an inward happiness which is neither the result of circumstance or subject to change on the basis of circumstance. And by using this word blessed or makarios, Jesus is saying it's possible to have a joy that no one can take from you. An inner peace that's not affected by the, the inevitable woes and worries of this fallen world. I like what William Barclay uh, in his commentary on Matthew puts it like this. He says, the world can win its joys and the world can equally lose its joys. A, a change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, even a change in the weather. And, and we're in a time now when there is a, an actual emotional state that's that's, that's medically diagnosed called SAD, S-A-D, Seasonal Affective Disorder. And some people do suffer from that. But this inner, inner joy, this inner happiness is not affected even, even by, by, by the weather. It can take away the fickle joy that the world gives. However, he says, the Christian can have the serene and untouchable joy which comes from, from walking forever in the company and in the presence of Jesus Christ as his follower, as his disciple learning of him. It's the ability to be deeply joyful no matter what comes and to give God the glory as we, 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 we talked about this morning. You may have an unexpected diagnosis, but you can still be Macarius. A bill comes in that you don't know how you're going to be able to pay it, but you can still have Macarius. Downsizing at work may take your job away. It comes as a shock, but your Macarius can still be intact. Your joyful happiness in your soul can still be intact. In fact, the word makarios has a deeper meaning even than blessed because it also means to have divine approval. Jesus was saying that the, the kind of people he describes here, the people he applies his, his word makarios to, they not only have an experience of invulnerable joy, they also make God proud and make God happy. It's a statement of how God views uh, people who live in a certain way. And this root idea of being blessed is, is one of being approved by God. Max Lucado uh, captures this idea in his book. It's called The Applause of Heaven. And he says we could translate the Beatitudes like this. God applauds the poor in spirit. He cheers the mourners. He favors the meek. He smiles on the hungry. He honors the merciful. He welcomes the pure in heart. He claps for the peace, peacemakers. And he rises to greet the persecuted. And I think... The people who first heard this sermon on the mount must have been a bit perplexed, a bit puzzled, because Jesus applies this word makarios to things they would never think of applying it to at first glance. His teaching, as I've said before, seems to be counterintuitive uh, 
uh, and is also to us today, to say happy are the poor, the meek, the merciful, the persecuted, the slandered. It seems as if Jesus has switched things around that just don't, don't, don't go together. If we lived according to the standards of today's society, we'd say blessed are the rich and, and the powerful. Blessed are the people who never have anything to be sad about. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a good time. Blessed are those who look after number one. Blessed are the popular and those who have more friends on Facebook than anybody else. They're blessed. In other words, at first glance, Jesus' teaching doesn't make sense from a worldly point of view. But the truth is that our Creator, our Heavenly Father, knows better than we do what brings Macarius to our lives. He created us and He's well aware of the fact that we were made for eternity. And because we are, the temporary things of this world can't bring lasting joy. They can never bring us real Macarius. Have you ever asked the question, what actually is happiness? What is happiness? Now, it's hard to define because it's so subjective. Ask 100 people, they'll give you a different definition, subjective to themselves. From a secular worldview, it can only be described by talking about external things that affect our lives. Some people look to find this happiness in marriage. Some people find it in divorce, <laughs> strangely. Some people find it through drug and alcohol abuse. Some through eating or overeating. Some through dieting as well. Uh, some find it through sex or other immoral relationships. But sadly, there are even those who find that the only way they can find happiness is to, is to take their own life and escape from their problems and anguish, their emptiness and their thoughts of despair. And so it's a very transient sort of thing. Happiness, worldly happiness. The Old Testament gives a great example of this in the life of King, uh, King Solomon. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, albeit at a point in his life when he was far away from God. But the whole book was a quest, it was a crusade, it was a, it was a, a journey, an adventure for this man to find happiness, ultimately. And Solomon went after every sin that you could possibly imagine. He, listen, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Man, could you imagine that? Could you imagine that? He was also a brilliant administrator, an able politician, a shrewd military commander and leader. He was a prolific writer. He wrote over a thousand songs and three thousand proverbs. He was the wealthiest king that ever lived. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, and his annual income was 23 metric tons of gold per year. What a man. He had everything, everything. In the end, this is what he concluded in Ecclesiastes 2, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was a reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Isn't that tragic? Not really tragic. Isn't that a, really a cry of despair? And, and isn't that the cry, really, of our age today? To find ultimate happiness, but it'll not be found in external things. An old hymn that the worship team won't even know about um, <laughs> testifies to it. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. And as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. I sighed for rest and happiness. I yearned for them, not thee. But while I passed my Savior by, his love laid hold on me. 
O Christ, in thee my soul has found, and found in thee alone, the peace, the joy I sought so long, the bliss till now unknown. Some of you will know the chorus. Now none but Christ can satisfy. No other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. Amen. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said uh, to his disciples, he said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Happiness and satisfaction in life is not to be found in things. It can't be experienced in the external things or, or even in our feelings. It can't be brought through medicine or alcohol or relationships. It can't be brought from without to within. You can't fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. Physical things can't touch the soul. In fact, eternal things are often a torment to the soul. So to be blessed simply means to have God's approval on your life and how you're living your life uh, before him as we follow what he teaches, uh, especially in these beatitudes. It's not something that, that's affected by how we feel. It has to do with God thinks of us as we live our lives for him. And let me mention one more important thing about this word blessed. And this is just an introduction to the Beatitudes. We'll get into each one over the coming days. But let me tell you one more important thing about, uh, about the word blessed. It's a word that indicates character because it's a word that's also used to describe God. Did you know that? Many times in the Bible we find the statement blessed or blessed be God. Psalm 68, 35 says, blessed be God. Psalm 72 and 18 says, Blessed be the Lord God. Psalm 119 and 12 says, Blessed art you, O Lord. This word is also used of Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Whatever this blessedness is, it's true of God and it's true of Christ. So it follows that the only people who can ever experience it are those who partake of God and partake of Christ. There's no blessedness apart from God, apart from living your life for Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read that we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are partakers of the divine nature. And that means that we can know the same inner state of contentment, the same happiness deep down within us that is known by God and the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. What a marvelous thing it is to realize Macarius is fundamentally an element of the character of God but we can only experience that in as much as we're partakers of the divine nature. And according to Psalm 32 and verse 1, every believer is blessed. You know why? Because our sin has been forgiven. Psalm 1, every believer is blessed if he walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of the scornful, but lives a holy life before God. And so as we begin to look at the Beatitudes over these weeks, we need to be asking ourselves, whose approval in life are we looking for? Do we look for our business partner's approval, our friend's approval, our spouse's approval? Are we only satisfied when we get the approval and the praise of men? Or would we rather have the approval of God in the way we live? Blessedness is God's seal of approval. And it's to be found in all of the Beatitudes. There are, not some, there are not some Christians that are meek 
and then there are other Christians who, who mourn and some who are pure in heart. Every Christian, all of us, are to evidence all of these beatitudes. And these characteristics can only be lived out by Christians. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you've never trusted God as your Savior, you've never acknowledged your sinfulness, but you're trying to live a good life, you'll not be able to do it until you come first to the foot of the cross and you confess your need of Jesus Christ to begin with. And we're to display these beatitudes ourselves and we'll discover that as we look at each one. And along, of course, with the fruit of the Spirit that we've looked at before, they're to ripen in our lives as well. And we should and we must display each of these character traits. It's easy to make the mistake of saying, well, I believe in mourning for my own sins, but I'm just not a merciful kind of a person. Or I'm too meek to be a peacemaker, things like that. We can't pick up some of these attitudes and ignore others. They're a package deal. They all go together. And Jesus taught his disciples about how, uh, how they should live differently because they alone could live out these things. They alone could carry out his will in the world. And you and I uh, know that the same Christ uh, can be known today and the same blessedness when we live for him. Jesus has to say, what Jesus has to say to us here is very profound. It's very transforming. And I believe, you know, I believe we'll be different people if we really trust his word as we understand it, as we get through this series, because I don't believe you can study the Sermon on the Mount, really, and take it into your life as an individual and, and not, uh, not be changed. You can't remain the same. Then finally tonight, Jesus is not talking about attitudes alone, but attitudes are seen in actions, aren't they? He's saying that our beliefs must impact our behavior. He's not saying live like this in order to be saved. He's saying live like this because you're saved. Conduct has to flow out of character. And a disciple is one who both embraces and embodies the Beatitudes. As disciples, we're stamped with the image of Christ, not by the culture around us or by the tendencies that come from within us. These Beatitudes are to be lived out in our day-to-day -day lives. And someone has said, too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but they're not willing to endure the inconvenience of living right. So Jesus calls us to live differently than the world. We're called to embody uh, these Beatitudes, and Jesus says it's then and only then that we'll be truly, deeply happy, have that makarios, his seal of approval. We can have this blessed joy no matter what comes in life, but to have it, we need to value the things that he values. We need to live as he lived, and when we do, God will, uh, God will be proud in the right sense of that word, and we will attract the applause of heaven. Think of it like that. When God looks down upon you, is God looking down and saying, oh, there he is. There she is. My approval, the way they're living, the applause of heaven. Let me ask you as we close, sensed sound of God's applause and approval lately in your life? Feel the smile of his approval when it comes to the attitudes and actions that you embrace in your everyday living. Jesus said that we can live in such a way that we can experience this approval of the Heavenly Father every day. He said, if you, if you value the things that I value, uh, 
then you can be supremely happy and blessed. You can have a joy that no one will take away. And on top of that, you'll experience the applause of heaven. Amen. And so as we begin, as we're doing tonight, this study of the Beatitudes, we haven't really got into the first Beatitude. The real question is, how much do you want God's applause? The Beatitudes will surely show us again and again what a disciple really looks like, and we can measure ourselves against God's standard, and they'll tell us how we can have that applause of heaven. And if that's what you want, then the place to begin is by embracing and embodying the first Beatitude, blessed or blessed, or happy are you, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I look forward to exploring that truth with you, not next week, but the week after that. Amen? Amen. Let's just bow in prayer for a moment.